If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM, let's create. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. The second anniversary of Russia's war in Ukraine approaches on February 22nd, and the brutal war drags on. American military aid to Ukraine is running out with no clear path to passing new weapons money through Congress. Meanwhile, our own Jillian Melcher is on the ground in Ukraine this week, and she joins us on the special edition of Potomac Watch from Kiev to tell us what the war looks like from there. Jillian, welcome. Good to uh, talk to you. This is your fourth trip to Ukraine since the war began, and you followed it all along. Uh, what strikes you about the mood there now in Kiev and how it's different from your last visit? Yeah, it has a sense of urgency and tenseness here, I think. Kiev has been very well protected by Western air defense. So when I was here in September, it felt very safe. I think there's an awareness that Ukraine, if the U.S. doesn't re-up its weaponry, Ukraine is going to run out of air defense fairly quickly. It's already not able to cover the entire country. And I think there is a sense that any Western delays cost Ukrainian lives. There's a lot of concern around just, just the future here. And, you know, one woman that I was talking to said the way she'd describe it is Ukrainians are determined. They're not in a mood to surrender or to negotiate with Putin because they think that he will plow over them the first chance that he gets. But she said, when we feel down, we're in the emotional trenches. We're readying ourselves to get up and fight again. And that's that's the somber sense here. It's a somber sense. It's a wonderful sentiment from that woman. On the other hand, it's very hard to maintain if you're under constant bombardment. The uh, state of the war is uh, has shifted. Ukraine uh, had the much uh, ballyhooed offensive in the summer that uh, did not succeed. But now what I am hearing and uh, outside observers are saying is that Russia is on the offensive, although modestly so. But because of its sheer mass of advantages in artillery and manpower, it is slowly moving to retake some territory from the Ukrainians that it had lost uh, when Ukraine was on the offensive. Is that the reading from there? Yeah, I think, you know, right now the battlefield is pretty static. If you're talking about Russian gains, they're very small. We're talking maybe like a kilometer at a time. So it's quite tense. But I think the fear is, you know, in 2022, when the Ukrainians broke through Russian defensive lines, you had these massive gains of Ukraine reclaiming its territory. And the fear is that if Ukraine is running out of ammunition, and I'm hearing that at some ports in the front line, uh, Russians have an advantage of 10 to 1, 15 to 1, 20 to 1. Uh, these are in artillery shells. Yeah, this is this is ammo, the 155 millimeter artillery um, that you could have a Russian breakthrough. And I, I think a couple open questions right now are how well Ukraine's defensive fortifications are uh, are fortified, because if they're not heavily fortified, you, you could run into a problem. So is the Ukraine military weapon need fundamentally these artillery shells, ammunition, 
and then air defenses? Is there, are those the two most acute needs? They are two very acute needs. The other things that I'm hearing is that that's just from uh, keeping things going mode. And the reason why is like I, I was talking to people who know soldiers at the front or who are going to the front line regularly, and they're saying that soldiers are just sitting there. They can't retreat from the front line. But when you have an artillery disparity that's that significant, they are just getting pounded. So it's a very difficult situation to hold. So that's that's the ammo need. And they can't totally offset that with drones. They've done a good job trying, but you have to remember drones have a smaller range. They have a lower payload. And Russians have already gotten really good at electronic warfare. So that's something that is makeshift, but you can't count on it as a substitute for ammunition. Just on the air defenses front, we're talking mainly about Patriot batteries and some other European uh, air defenses. And those are, are those essentially take out uh, Russian missiles and drone swarms. Is that it? Yeah. So I I think the really urgent need that I'm hearing is the Patriots, because um, you're seeing Russia getting North Korean missiles. These are ballistic missiles. There's some other system that can take it out, but it's pretty much only a Patriot that can take that out. So you have a a lower interception rate. Um, Ukrainians have done really interesting things with U.S. help. It's called like Frankensteining missiles, and that's air-to-air missiles that they've kind of MacGyvered to shoot down incoming air stuff. You've also got like guys sitting on the rooftop with machine guns trying to shoot down Shahid drones. But yeah, this the situation's dire. I was speaking uh, not long ago with uh, an American general who's a close observer of the Ukrainian effort, and uh, he says that the the Russian tactic is to just saturate a space with uh, artillery, and then once it's cleared, to advance into that with infantry and take it, and then stop, and then saturate the next area, and that makes for a slow advance. But it means that for the Ukrainians who are getting hit with that uh, artillery, it is very, very dangerous and and just hard to take day after day after day. Yeah, you are absolutely right on that. I mean, you can get a sense in Kiev. Everybody knows someone at the front. Everybody's got a loved one or a close friend at the front. And there's a real sense of anxiety when you start talking about ammunition because they know that it's it's their person that they love who's on the front taking those bullets and without enough ammunition to shoot back. Let's talk about the manpower uh, issue as well because Russia is so much larger than Ukraine and Vladimir Putin has no restraint in who he's willing to call up. He's mobilizing tens of thousands more, I guess maybe even hundreds of thousands of more troops. And he also doesn't care much if they uh, take casualties. Whereas Ukrainians, they must be much more cautious uh, because uh, there's just a limit. Uh, why don't you go through some of the numbers? My one striking th- number that I heard recently is that the average age of the Ukrainian service member now is 43, which is old, very old for a fighting force. I mean, again, I heard a U.S. general say that you're a lot less vigorous at 43 than you are at 23, as we all know, but you're also a lot less brave. You know, young men are more daring. You know, they often don't have families. Yeah. So if you're looking broadly, Ukraine's got a population of about 40 million uh, in 2022 before the war. Russian population is 144.7 million. So that's the disparity. And you know, that that 43 figure, I've run it past a couple people here. It's not an official statistic that it's out, but people say they think that sounds about right. Ukraine doesn't have that many young people. Russia doesn't either. But for Ukraine, I mean, this is another way that this is an existential battle for them. They're They're losing or are standing in a position where they can lose a lot of their next generation. 
So the way that a smaller country like Ukraine takes on a bigger country like Russia is they need a force equalizer. And that's what the weapons that the West has been supplying are. It allows you to punch with a bigger fist. And then there are other things that they're doing to offset their demographic disadvantage. Um, you know, Ukrainians are very motivated, whereas Russians, your average conscript yanked off the street doesn't really know what he's fighting for as much. Ukrainians are fighting for their land and their loved ones. Um, Ukrainians are better trained as a whole. That's that's another force equalizer. But if you start pulling Western weapons out of the situation, which is what is going to happen if this congressional aid doesn't come through, then you've really got David staring at Goliath, but without a slingshot. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about the view from Ukraine with our Jillian Melcher and the prospects for uh, aid from the United States, military aid, when we come back. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. Welcome back. I'm Paul Gigo with the Wall Street Journal opinion pages, and I'm here on Potomac Watch with my colleague Jillian Melcher, who's based in Ukraine uh, right now, uh, reporting from Kiev. And uh, you interviewed Jillian Petro Poroshenko, who's the former uh, prime minister of Ukraine, now a member of the parliament. Let's listen to uh, something of what he told you. In every uh, region of Ukraine, when I come, we have a full field of the uh, Ukrainian flags with uh, either my friends or a uh, member of my team. And this is very good that you ask mm. They fight not only for Ukraine, and they give their life not only for Ukraine. My dear friends and partners, American people. Jillian, I heard uh, tears there of talking about his uh, Ukrainian compatriots. Yeah, it was a very emotional interview. So the president and I started talking about Western aid, and he mentioned um, that my readers can't understand what it's like going to the funeral of your friends, the funeral of people that you've worked for. So I asked him if he could give me an example, and the, the interview really took a deeply emotional turn. Uh, he was weeping, big tears pouring down his cheeks, wiping them away as he was listing some of the people that he'd lost that he knew very well. And, you know, they ranged in in age. You know, he's talking about a 56-year-old, one of the wisest people that he knew who died in an assault operation trying to save a friend. Another young man who worked closely with him who was killed on his 25th birthday. And the list just went on and on and on. And I think uh, what that brings home is, again, you've got a country with a smaller population, a huge manpower disparity. And he was bringing up that every delay in Western weaponry, every every time that they don't have that force equalizer, the cost is manpower to keep this fight going. And that cost is lives. All right. Let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, the political scene in Kiev, because Vladimir Zelensky, the current president, replaced his military chief not long ago. Why did he do that? Uh, what changes in strategy or tactics is it likely to portend? And... Uh, Overall, what is the support domestically for the war? Is it holding up? Yeah, so I think the West was really confused about this military shakeup, and I've been asking about it. I'm not sure Ukrainians have much more clarity. They feel like the way that this was handled was a little bit uh, chaotic. 
you know, on one hand, it's it's pretty normal. This war is entering into its third year. That's a long time to be at the helm. So it's, it's not out of left field to have a bit of a military shakeup. I am hearing from people that I know who are at the front that they feel pretty confident about the new leadership. One concern is continuity. So anytime you're bringing in um, a new group of people, it's just a bit of a learning curve. But I, I think this is uh, a decision that's made with the acknowledgement on Ukraine's part that this is going to be a long fight. And there's still support for Zelensky? Does uh, he have the backing of the public? He does. Um, you know, it's interesting when you talk to people, uh, they're very supportive of him. That is in part because they feel like they need to be united right now. They're very conscientious that uh, a divided Ukraine cannot take on Russia as well. At the same time, you know, if you're looking at uh, just popularity figures, Luzhny was beloved, uh, that general. People really trusted him. He was more popular than Zelensky. So that's an interesting dynamic. But I think where people think that Zelensky is particularly strong, he comes from, you know, a, a theatrical actor background and he's a good communicator. And there's a sense that especially as there's a risk of Western aid dwindling, you need somebody like that uh, in charge. Is there any recognition that you can detect dawning on the part of uh, the Kiev leadership that they are going to have to negotiate some kind of settlement? No. Uh, you know, if you bring it up, people people get offended, frankly. I think the way that they're looking at it is they've got the experience of the 2014 invasion and a negotiated settlement that Putin did not respect. That was the so-called Minsk agreement. Yeah, they, they feel like if they negotiate, Putin will not negotiate in good faith, that he'll use any pause in the war to build up Russian resources and hit back twice as hard. They, they're looking at um, his interview with Tucker Carlson, the fact that his ambitions haven't changed. And just looking at it from a logistical standpoint, they think that if, if you can't have a negotiated settlement where you're trusting your negotiating partner, the only way to keep that in place is to have a, a front line or a border, uh, however you want to put it, that is manned and that is heavily armed. And so they don't see their need for manpower or for military weaponry decreasing anytime soon. And if that's the case, uh, they think that it's a disadvantage for them not to fight right now. Putin did say to uh, Tucker Carlson in that largely softball interview that he is willing to sit down and negotiate. But of course, the terms are everything. And uh, it seems to me that Putin has shown no uh, willingness to negotiate on anything but his term, which means control over substantial chunks of Ukraine. And uh, probably he'll want to get in the U.S. and the Europeans. He'll want uh, no security guarantees at all for Ukraine if there is a settlement going forward. And, and that would be a suicide game for Ukraine, suicide on the installment plan, because it would allow Putin to rebuild, rearm, and then move again against Kyiv in the future. Yeah, that is exactly what people are saying. Um, they don't think his goals have changed. Putin wants all of Ukraine. And if you talk to people here, they are very afraid of being pressured into a negotiated settlement or having a settlement reached above their heads. All right, we're going to take another break and we'll come back with more from Jillian Melcher from Ukraine on uh, how the war goes two years in and uh, prospects for actual U.S. military aid when we come back. This podcast is brought to you by Alex Partners. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. 
Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index online today at disruption.alexpartners.com. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker, play the opinion Potomac Watch podcast. That is, play the opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. I'm Paul Gigo with the uh, Potomac Watch podcast here, talking to my colleague Jillian Melcher from Kiev, uh, where she has been. And as the second anniversary of the war arrives soon on February 22nd. So, Jillian, the um, prospects for that aid package for Ukraine, the military aid, which is especially necessary, very unclear right now. It did pass the uh, Senate uh, with 70 votes in a bipartisan fashion, but the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, is uh, vowing not to bring a vote to the floor with the Senate bill. It's uncertain what he will try to do. Uh, The House is going on recess for two weeks this evening. And uh, that means there will be only some backstage discussions and so on, nothing uh, with a chance to pass or move. Some of the Republicans and Democrats, including led by Brian Fitzpatrick, a Republican from Pennsylvania, are talking about something called a discharge petition, that uh, maneuver that if uh, backbenchers can get to 218 signers, which is be a majority in the House, then you can take the bill to the House floor for a vote and bypass the leadership. Not easy to do, however, because uh, while you can get to 210 easily, getting those last few votes is very difficult because that's when the leadership kicks in. And if it's really determined, can start to break some arms. And I mean break some arms. Uh, (laughs) Ferocious lobbying, threats to re-election, threats about running primary campaigns. If they're really determined, to, uh, to stop that from happening. And of course, Donald Trump is implacably opposed to this bill and aid for Ukraine. He's now saying, according to Lindsey Graham, the Republican senator close to Trump, that he'd be willing to allow loans to Ukraine for this. But of course, most of what we're giving Ukraine are weapons that we're building with American industrial production, the 155 millimeter shells, for example, the the Senate bill would allow for uh, substantial numbers in the tens of thousands more, and those would be made in America. Same with the Patriot missile battery increases. So it's very uncertain uh, whether or not this bill will move in the House. And I think my question is, is that reality, that possibility dawning on people in Ukraine? And what do they, how do they think they cope? It is dawning on them. And, you know, I was, I was talking to uh, one of the lawmakers just this week. He was saying that without U.S. support, the situation is desperate. And that's completely right. If you look at uh, just breaking down the numbers, there's a bit of a false perception in the United States that Europe isn't pulling its weight. It is absolutely pulling its weight. But that's in financing and loans that help Ukraine's government keep running. Now, that's really, really important because it allows Ukraine to spend 100% of its tax revenue on soldiers, on defense, on the fight. But Europe cannot, even if it were to do its best to step up right now, it cannot provide what Ukraine needs in terms of military support. 
So if this doesn't come through, we're talking about Ukraine running out of shells, Ukraine running out of air defense, and people are freaked out about it. You, you talk to politicians here and they're saying, we're making the national interest case to the U.S. as best we can. Uh, you've got the Budapest Memorandum where the, the U.S., among other countries, said that they would protect uh, Ukraine's territorial integrity if it gave up its nuclear weapons. They're saying your credibility is on the line, America. They're saying that if if you allow Russia to do this, China is paying attention, you're increasing the odds of a conflict in Taiwan. They're saying that there's potential for if, if this conflict, if this war expands, uh, economic chaos. I mean, they, they are making these logical points and they're saying we feel like it's not getting through. We feel like Ukraine has become too politicized in the United States and we feel like we're being held hostage to domestic and internal politics. And sitting in Kiev, that's a pretty scary position to be in. Well, just to put a finer point on your artillery ammunition point, the um, U.S. Uh, uh, military source told me that uh, the Ukrainians by mid-March will be down about 85% in terms of their, the, their shell stockpile, and by June they'll be out. So that means that the Russians would really have a significant advantage there. And uh, it's possible, possible that there could be a breakout by the Russians sometime this year. But is there a sense, Jillian, that with uh, American help, their own ingenuity and European aid continuing, and maybe you know whatever they can pick up on the open market, uh, uh, arms market, that uh, and when I say American help, I mean not weapons per se, but the kind of expertise, how they can jerry rig a defense that would allow them to hold hold the line here. You know, they really need those weapons. I, I think that's what it comes down to. I don't think they're going to quit fighting. They view Russia as a genocidal regime. They view this as existential for Ukraine. But you can only fight so hard with your hands. They need that weaponry. That's crucial. I agree. And it is uh, a debate that I think is going to become even sharper here in the coming weeks, because if Ukraine does begin to lose ground, you're going to see, I think, uh, the uh, world and the President of the United States you know, putting enormous amounts of pressure on Speaker Michael Johnson to at least allow a vote. Because everybody, I mean, the Speaker has said, look, the, we're going to let the House work its will. Well, if the House works its will, all the signs suggest that a majority of the House members with substantial numbers of Republicans joining Democrats would pass this Senate package. And uh, of course, if Speaker and Republicans want to amend the Senate bill, they can. They can have a process in which they bring up uh, amendments, for example, maybe to uh, reduce the portion of the bill that is non-military aid and say, okay, the Europeans can do this we will provide the hard power. They can do that. But if it turns out that the Republicans refuse a vote, even a vote on this, then I think this is going to be a historic moment of betrayal on the part of the Republicans. And uh, I don't think history will look kindly upon it. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, um, people here are quoting Churchill a lot, a lot of discussion about the consequences of appeasement. I'm hearing a lot of speculation that this is the start of World War III if we don't stop it. But I, th I think the bigger point here is if you thought Afghanistan looked bad, wait until you withhold weaponry from Ukraine. It's, it's going to be a disaster. All right, Jillian, thank you for joining us from Kyiv. Thank you for your reporting. And please stay safe while you're there. 
uh, as well as on your trip out. So thank you all for listening. We're here every day on uh, Potomac Watch. So I hope you're here tomorrow and all next week and beyond. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab that unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise.